Good morning, everyone. Welcome back again. It's nice to see everybody. <laughs> I uh, chose another poem from Rumi, actually, this week. My efforts to branch out here that I'll read for you. Say, I am you. I am dust particles in sunlight. I am the round sun. To the bits of dust, I say, stay. To the sun, keep moving. I am morning mist and the breathing of evening. I am wind in the top of a grove and the surf on a cliff. Mast, rudder, helmsman, and keel, I am also the coral reef they founder on. I am a tree with trained parrots in its branches, silence, thought, and voice. The musical air coming through a flute, a spark of a stone flickering in metal, both candle and the moth crazy around it, rose and the nightingale lost in the fragrance. I am all orders of being, the circling galaxy, the evolutionary intelligence, the lift and the falling away, what is and what isn't. You who know Jalalulun, you the one in all, say who I am, say I am you. I think, uh, if any, for those of you who have been hanging around here this week, uh, a lot of what I say today might be a repeat to you. I've gotten onto a certain tune this week, and I'm, I, I can't get my mind off of it. I'm very excited about it, it mostly because it just seemed so practical, and, uh, and I feel like it just offers somewhat of a glimpse uh, of, uh, of how these beautiful things that we hear about in our philosophy actually can trickle down and become experienced, become a part of who we are, become a part of the way we see the world around us. And uh, I've been trying to capture it, which I know is a ridiculous effort, but it's entertained me for the week, so that's something. And uh, I'm trying, uh, I tried to uh, pin it down here with some scriptures this morning that uh, we'll share and kind of walk our way through it. And, uh, and then something surprising came along, too, uh, in that I was actually sitting here in the auditorium day before yesterday, and uh, as Mother sometimes does, she uh, decided to say enough to my wasting my time trying to meditate and just dumped the whole lecture into my head at one time. So I had to leave the auditorium early up and go upstairs and scribble it all out and try and remember, try and capture uh, some of the things uh, that I was that I saw or that I that I stumbled upon, I guess, in my mind. So I'm excited to share them. I don't know if I'm going to be successful or not, but I'll appreciate your patience as we try. Um, as we jump into this time, you know, my goal every time that I get to stand up here and uh, have have really what I what amounts to a really fun time for me. I enjoy talking about these things and sharing these things. And uh, every time I come, it's just my hope that, you know, God comes, that God manifests here so that that atmosphere of love develops in us, that that feeling of inspiration, just a tiny glimmer of, of our nature, a tiny, a tiny, tiny vision of, 
of the potential that lies locked up inside of us by our errant thinking, to just open those gates just a moment so that beautiful humanity, which is our nature, that pure love, uh, that, that, that pure being, that absolute authenticity uh, will bubble up and be an experience for us all to have together. So that's my prayer as I stand up here this morning and do this. And, and in, in the quest of that, I always go back to what's most important, as you know, every time I speak, I say the same thing, begin with the same thing. And it's with a good reason, because I haven't yet learned it. And so I remind myself every time I stand up here in front of you that this is something that we're doing together, that this is an effort we're making together, and that we're trying to generate uh, all of the uh, willpower and the, the perseverance uh, and the encouragement together as a group that we can to bring about that realization, to bring about that understanding in anyone. Uh, every day or every other week, I get to sit here and do that worship, and I've shared with you before, one of the, the, I always end that worship with a prayer for realization for one of us, for any of us. You know, part of that formal worship at the end is you put that little bit of water in your hand, and it becomes symbolic of the offering itself, and you give that to Takor, and you, you ask him to overlook all of the shortcomings and all of the weaknesses of that time together, and then you get bold, and you close out your, 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 your worship with a prayer for enlightenment. You know? And since that, since that offering is done on behalf of all of us in the room, since all of us have provided all of the things that, that make this temple what it is, and have de de decided this is the place of worship, that, we come, that I get to sit in this place before that divinity and ask on our behalf every day for that enlightenment for that understanding, for that seeing. And uh, this time with you, this time talking about these things and opening the scriptures and reading the poetry is an extension of that prayer. Everything that is said, every, every time we come here, every time we sit in one of these chairs, any time we come and clean the kitchen or cook some food or mop a floor, the prayer is the same. God, let us recognize that we're with you. Let us experience that intensity that we see dancing in Takor's eyes in the gospel, that we see celebrated in his dancing and his playing with the devotees. The thing, let us see that which inspired every word that came from his mouth, you know, whether we're looking at a Jesus or a Buddha, you know, that we can understand and find that place that they lived to know that that's our nature, our birthright also, and that we can demand that. And in doing that, Takor says the most important thing in you this morning is your sincerity and your earnestness. And so my hope is that as we go forward that we, we commit to that sincerity and that earnestness in each other, encourage that, that we're willing to be that vulnerable and that open with each other, that authenticity is, is manifest. And that love comes to us, you know, through the mouth of Jesus, that to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the most important thing. And in Vedanta, we understand that that's the same as loving one another as we love ourselves, to have that kind of commitment to serving and to caring, to being there for each other, one-on-one, -on -one, all the time. And then our commitment to truth in our meditations and in our prayers, in our efforts at work, everything that we do to try and come from that place of truth, a place of integrity, a place, a place of authenticity, a place of, of, of 
something that's transcendentally meaningful, that's not just material, to try and find that truth and to, to live that way with one another. So that's the commitment this morning. Now, the lecture this morning was, is titled The Wise Guy, and uh, actually that was Swami A's idea. Uh, I, uh, mine, I just said the wise man, and he said, oh, you mean the wise guy? And I was like, yes, yeah, I, that's exactly what I meant. So, uh, and of course, to go and talk about the wise guy, uh, we obviously have to go to the second chapter of the Gita to find out what the description of the man of steady wisdom is. So I'm going to read this description of the man of steady wisdom. And uh, this is the part that was kind of cool in that uh, when that idea, <laughs> I don't know how to talk about those things, came up in my meditation, I guess, in here, Mother put another verse in my head, uh, a very famous verse, Psalm 23 from the Old Testament in the Bible. And uh, at first I just thought it was samskara <laughs> that was bringing it up. I was like, why is that there? So I went back and I read it. And I saw that uh, samskara, that, that beautiful psalm of David is a mirroring of the man of steady wisdom. That it shows how the man of steady wisdom is accomplished through relationship with God. So I'm going to try and capture both of those. We're going to kind of take, I think... With, with Ma's permission, we're going to take two snapshots. We're going to take a picture of the ideal, the man of steady wisdom. We're going to take a look at that. Then we're going to kind of wonder together what that points at, not just as qualities of a perfect person, but to try and explore uh, through jnana yoga, really, and one of the seers, Sri Nishragadatta Maharaj, to try and understand what it implies. What does it mean? You know, what's, what is supporting those attitudes of a man of steady wisdom? Where, where, what is the unifying understanding that that person has? And, and how do you find that? And then I'm hoping we have time, because we get two hours, right? That, uh, <laughs> that uh, we'll have like a three-minute period maybe of some, of some uh, lab work where we're going to try and do a little bit of a guided meditation and uh, maybe hopefully stumble on something kind of cool for us to practice and then we're going to end it by running to bhakti yoga and looking at the exact same principles that we that we look at in the gyanic approach from the bhakti approach to see how the exact same accomplishments are being made uh, with a very different idea, something that we can actually grab onto. So hopefully everybody will walk out with something this morning. When a man completely casts off all of his desires of the mind, and is satisfied in the self by the self, then is he said to be one of steady wisdom. He whose mind is not shaken by adversity, and who in prosperity does not hanker after pleasure, who is free from attachment, fear, and anger, is called a sage of steady wisdom. He who is everywhere without attachment on meeting with anything good or bad, who neither rejects nor hates, his wisdom is fixed. When, like the tortoise, which withdraws its limbs from all sides, he withdraws his senses from the sense objects, then his wisdom becomes steady. I had, I had a great opportunity in the, the first, well, in the majority of my spiritual 
path, at least in, as a monk in the order, to live with Swami Prabhudananda. And uh, I, as I read this scripture, I know what it looks like. I know what it looks like. I lived with uh, the, the Swami for 15 years and never, never saw a variance of bearing or attitude in anything in him. Nothing would, would bother him. He was just sometimes to an infuriating degree, I have to say, because you know, I'd be trying to get a rise out of him and some trying to poke something in there to get something, and there was just never, it was just always this tranquility. Uh, I share that experience. I, I remember telling it once before from here, but uh, I went on a 20-minute tirade one day uh, where I just opened the gates of my <laughs> criticisms of the order and of you know the Vedanta movement in America and how it's going and what the what the Swamis were doing. I was very young at the time. I had very strong opinions and very strong ideas about what things should look like. And I just I just laid it out there. I didn't I didn't censor it. I didn't package it nicely. I wasn't kind. I you know I even was poking directly at some of the decisions that he was making in the place in the temple. And I was just letting it go. I mean I remember my heart was beating and my face was flush and I was just impassioned by it. I just went for it. Just, I thought, this is my opportunity. I'm going to speak my truth. I'm just going to lay it out there. And uh, he sat there listening, you know, and I thought for sure I was going to get it. I really thought he was just going to lay me out. And after I had, you know, put all of this out there, I was sitting there breathing, you know, in space, waiting, thinking, okay, here it comes, here it comes. And he was sitting there at the table and he continued eating. And he sits back for a moment and he looks up and he says, yes, that is also a perspective. <laughs> that was all I got. Yes, that is also a perspective. So <laughs> he took nothing personally, wasn't offended at all at anything I had said, you know, felt no need to jump on any of my opinions or to, to you know, attack my pride or my arrogance at the time. Just a calm, yes, that also is a perspective. And uh, do you know how much I learned from that? Because I've read the news most days this week. And I remember Swami Prabhudananda, and I'm just grabbing onto his robes, and I'm just thinking, oh, God, yes, this is also a perspective. <laughs> yes, this also exists. And to find that inner peace. So what is it that Swami had? What is it that the man of steady wisdom has that brings about this tranquility? So often we just kind of look at this as an attitude and we, we kind of just think that, oh, we have to now just be tranquil, that, that being tranquil is the ideal. That's not the ideal. That's a result of the ideal. That's a, that's a symptom of having reached the ideal. But tranquility is not the ideal. The ideal is, is what this man of steady wisdom understands, what he knows, what he sees that results in tranquility, independent of circumstance, independent of what he's going through in his life. So I want to jump off the diving board first. We're going to go into uh, Jnana Yoga through um, at least one of the mo most colorful sages that I've read, uh, Sri Nishagadatta Maharaj from Bombay. Uh, colorful because he was a cigarette maker, and I've shared that every time I talk about him, and I probably always will because it's my favorite feature about him. I know that says something about me that I look at a sage and I like that he makes cigarettes, but uh, it's just that it's just that juxtaposition, you know. It's that that demonstration that it's it's not this stuff out here that matters. That it's what's going on within. It's it's the depth of character within the person 
that matters, whether he's a butcher or a cigarette maker or, you know, in the scriptures we see prostitutes and we see thieves and who all come to a realization seemingly without any merit whatsoever. So there's great hope in us. So we're going to turn to uh, Sri Nishagadatta, and he's giving us uh, his means for how he came to this realization. And we'll explore the, the realization also as we go through here. My guru, my teacher, ordered me to attend to the sense I am and to give attention to nothing else. Okay? Now these, these instructions, try and hold them in your mind. Try and grab them because these are all going to become components of our field exercise shortly. So he puts his entire attention on the fact of just being. Okay, there's no analyzing around that. There's no, no swirling thought of philosophy around that. Simply focus completely on being and give attention to nothing else. I just obeyed. I did not follow any particular course of breathing. I didn't follow any particular course of meditation or study of the scriptures. Whatever happened, I would turn away my attention from it and remain in that sense, I am. It may look too simple, even crude. My only reason for doing it was that my guru told me to do it. Yet it worked. Obedience is a powerful solvent of all desires and fears. So we get a couple of things there. One, the guru, his, his utter dependence on the guru. So he didn't go around the gyrations of why and what are the implications and should I accept this teaching or shouldn't I accept this teaching or what does it mean? He just did it, just absolutely applied himself to it, uh, this, this idea of just, of just being. And any time anything came in the way of that, any other, any other attention tried to pull him out of that space, he turned back and just sat with being, didn't accept any of the other noise. There is no sense of purpose in my doing anything. Things happen as they happen. This is what he saw in this place. Not because I make them happen, but it is because I am that they happen. In reality, nothing ever happens. When the mind is restless, it makes Shiva dance, like the restless waters of the lake make the moon dance. It is all appearance due to wrong ideas. When I say I am, I do not mean a separate entity with a body as its nucleus. I mean the totality of being. I mean the ocean of consciousness. I mean the entire universe of all that is and knows. I have nothing to desire, for I am complete forever. So in his sense of being, he didn't tie it to a pinpoint, the sense of existence that he had. He didn't define it. It was in its totality. You see the difference in that kind of thinking? So that he didn't, all the information coming in through the senses, all the noise and thoughts of the mind, he didn't pin them to a pole of a body didn't pin them to an idea of a man or a woman, of a Republican or a Democrat, of a smart person or a stupid person. He took the whole entirety and understood that it was all within him, that it was all there, 
that there was no particular point that was him. When I thought about this, I always like to go to the dream illustration because that's always really helpful to me. And uh, actually, if you sit and ponder dreaming, you can get a lot of these truths just from the ideas that will occur to you as you think about what the nature of dreaming is. Because when you're dreaming, think about a dream, okay? Let's, let's just do a quick one. You're being chased through a market in a bad part of town and you're trying to find safety, okay? So that's your dream. And in your dream, there's a world, there's air, there's empty space, there's trees, there's an enemy, there's you, there's a problem, there's consciousness, there's all of that. And you're a particular place in that dream. But in reality, where are you? In reality, you're in your mind. You're up here. You're, if someone else comes into your bedroom, you're laying in a bed, snoring, asleep. There's no markets. There's no good and bad parts of town. There's nobody running around. There's no danger. There's no open air spaces. It's all mind. It's all, all your imagination. There's nothing actually happening in there. And in that dream, the truth of that dream is that it's all you, right? There's not anyone else in that room. You're asleep in the bed. That enemy that's chasing you is you. The process of that enemy chasing you is you. You running from the enemy is you. The town you're running through is you. Not in an imaginary way, like we always like to think in Vedanta, oh, this is all me, and all we can do is kind of get abstract about that. Like, okay, this isn't abstract. This is your dream. You understand. It's you. You're laying there in bed. That whole scene is you, all of it, not part of it, not just the point that you've assigned your consciousness to in that dream, not the part that's afraid and running. The whole dream, everything in there, you're digging that out of yourself. He's saying the exact same thing here. He goes on. He says the perceived cannot be the perceiver. Whatever you see, Whatever you hear or whatever you think of, remember, you are not what happens. You are he to whom it happens. Okay? That's to say that as you sit here this morning, all right, whatever you're thinking in your mind, whatever is being shown to you through your eyes and whatever you're hearing through your ears, you're not the active participant. That thought is being generated independent of you. This whole experience is happening within you. You're being all of this external world that we're assuming to be here is all inside. All of the noises are being trans translated into biochemical signals. Every sight is being converted into the same biochemical signals. And all of those signals are coming into their different centers in the mind, and the mind is creating this, what you see. And where is all of that happening? Within you, in the same place that that dream is happening. It's all happening in, in the mind. You have never seen light Firsthand, This is a really trippy thought for me. I've always really liked this thought. You don't know what light looks like. You've never seen it. You've never had, Swami Prabhudananda shared this with me one time, you've never had a direct experience of anything in your life. 
your entire world is interpreted from this steady stream of biochemical pulses that you're getting in your mind. And from this steady stream of, talking computer language, and the steady stream of zeros and ones coming in, which, which doesn't include light, doesn't include sound, doesn't include any of those things. In, if you were to go, if you were to actually take a camera and put it in, in the mind, in the space where, we'll, we'll say brain at this point, just for convenience, put the camera in there, it's dark in there. There's no light in there. You're inside your cranium, inside your muscle, your brain tissue. There's no light, there's no noise, there's nothing in there. You're just getting a biochemical stuff and you're creating the idea of light. You're creating the idea of sound. You're creating the idea of thought. You're creating, you've assembled the idea of this room. You've assembled the idea of God. You've put that all together out of the same stuff. <laughs> all from the same stuff. If somebody looked in your paint bucket, just like Takor says, you've got a bucket of dye, and it dyes things whatever color you want it to. But it's all the same stuff. All the information that's going into your main mind is all the same stuff, all the same colors, all the same color, all the same thing. And from that steady stream of information that you're interpreting as information, you create reality. You create your experience of this being. And he says, in doing that, the first step to understanding what's going on is to realize none of that's you. And you're not doing any of it. That if your sense of I was not there, it would go on. It would happen. Because this machine runs off of samskara, runs off of habit, runs off of history. <laughs> It'll keep going in the way it keeps going. It'll think the things it thinks. It will value the things it values. It will, like an old car, when you turn it off and it just keeps going. <laughs> That's the nature of this body. That's the nature of here. We think we're responsible, but we're not. He says the perceiver cannot, the perceived cannot be the perceiver. So separate that out. You're aware of your thoughts because you're perceiving them. You're watching them. If you're watching them, you can't be your thought. And if you can watch them, you're not the one generating them. You can understand that. You can watch that happen in your mind. You can sit there and watch your mind, and it will just keep churning on. <laughs> It'll just keep going. And you're not responsible for all the things that come up in it. it just, it's an organ, and it generates thought. That's what it does. And it will do that whether you identify with it or not, whether you think it's your mind or not. It'll just keep generating thought, every thought being born out of the previous thought, you know, in a new mixture, just a continual stream. You can't, you can't interfere with it. You can't interject a thought that's not related to the previous thought. You can't do it. That's how you know you're not in charge. <laughs> that's how you know it's not you generating these thoughts, because you can't do it. You can't have a thought that's not directly related to the previous one. It can't be done. You can only watch this thing continue to turn, continue to happen. So he says, know that, you, that there's two different things going on. Become the Whatever you see, hear, or think of, remember, you are not what happens. You're not under it. You're aside, watching it. Okay? Desire, fear, trouble, joy, they cannot appear unless you are there to appear too. 
Yet whatever happens points to your existence as a perceiving center. Disregard the pointers and be aware of what they are pointing to. And what are they pointing to? Satchit Ananda. So everything that you see, the way that we talked about this earlier in the week, or the way we tried to talk about these things, is looking in a mirror. When you're looking in a mirror, you're not the mirror, right? You're not, you're not that. But it's, but it's you, you're looking at a reflection of you, and you understand that. That's not a natural thing to understand. There's a great YouTube video where they put a giant mirror out in the jungle in Africa. They just sit it out in the middle of nowhere and put a hidden camera watching it as animals come and stumble upon it. And it's really cool, the different uh, reactions. Uh, only the chimpanzees ultimately seem to figure out that it's, that it's their reflection. And, and, and it takes them a while. And it's fun to kind of watch the experiments that they do with it that bring them to that conclusion. And when I saw that, I thought, that's how my meditations should be. They should be that engaging. Like, I should be looking at this thing, this mind, and I should be, what is this thing? Poke at it. Observe it. See what kind, what, what does it do? What's the nature of this thing? Because the mind is your mirror, right? All of this, this is the part that, that's so hard to, to really describe. Like he says here, all that you desire, all your fears, your troubles, all of the things that you hear and think and remember, they're not you. You're only watching. You're only seeing. And you're seeing a reflection. You're seeing a mirror of yourself, the self, the capital S self. Everything that's reflecting back to you right now, this goofy guy up here, this room full of imagined people, all of this is you. It's your reflection. The reason that you can't identify it is because you don't know what you look like. You don't know what you are. So you don't look at the mirror and say, ah, it's me. <laughs> Isn't it cool? Look, it's me. Oh, I should comb my hair. You know, <laughs> it's not like that because you don't know who you are. So that's what this self-realization is. That's what this quest is. It's to be able to understand like the, like the goofballs in the jungle looking at this big mirror to sit there and look at this mirror and come to the realization, wow, this is me. This is me. There aren't a bunch of people here. These are just me. All of this is happening within, and I'm just staring at it. I'm just watching it. I'm a witness to all of this. And as you take that and you refuse in the practice of when you take this, you, you, the practice is to constantly disregard the pointers don't, because what happens is you'll get in there and then you'll have a cool thought like, oh, this is cool. And you'll realize, I just owned that thought. What is owning a thought? Owning a thought is ego. It's, it's applying me and mine to a thought. You don't want ego. We don't want me and mine. So step back again and turn and look at that thought that you, that you thought was yours, that you thought defined something about you, and see it in the general again. Remove that particular point of reference. Remove it again. Just hear that thought with all the myriad of thoughts out there, with all the myriad of stimulations going on, and understand this is Satchit Ananda. This is God, himself, herself, 
dancing for you, as Hafi says, you know. You're, you're, when, you, when you put your finger into that pond, when you stop becoming the observer, when you put your finger into your thoughts or into your mind and own one of them, that's what makes it all dance. That's what gives it all value and meaning and good and bad and future and past and whatnot. It's that identification. It's when you sit there and put your finger in. If you don't put your finger in, keep abstracting, keep watching, you'll find that it becomes placid. It becomes free of encumberment, becomes free of definition. It becomes easily seen love. Love is what you'll identify. Love is what you'll learn about. Love is what you'll see because that's what your nature is. That's how these great sages can remain tranquil and unaffected because they don't have not chosen a particular lonely place to stand to identify themselves. They know they are the totality. And because they're looking at it as a totality, the opposites disappear. A coin only has two sides if you pick a single perspective to look at it from. If you pick all the perspectives to look at it from, the coin has no sides at all. You see the difference? And if you learn to look at this world that way, not to define it from your idea of an American or of an Indian or of a man or of a woman or of a politically entangled person of any kind, mm -hmm. if you learn to not see the world from that perspective, but you see the whole, you'll see love. That's all you'll see, a constant, ever-unfolding kaleidoscope of love expressed, Satchit Ananda in his mirror. That's what you'll see. That's what you'll see. Realize that every mode of perception is subjective, that what is seen or heard, touched or smelt, felt or thought, expected or imagined, is in the mind and not in reality. And you will experience peace and freedom from fear. So understand exactly that. Stand in the dream and come to an awareness that all of this is me. All of it's me. This guy chasing me is me. This person standing here being afraid is me. I've created all of this. Whom shall I fear? What is the cause of the disturbance within me? Where is my anger? Where is my jealousy? Where is my need? Where is my hunger? It doesn't exist. All that is happening here is a constant kaleidoscopic unfolding of divinity. Yourself viewed in a mirror. The mirror called mind. When you realize that the distinction between inner and outer is in the mind only, you are no longer afraid. So this idea of inner and outer doesn't exist. There is no external world. You cannot prove it. You cannot prove one. You cannot validate it. You, there's no way to, to test it. There's, you cannot prove that the external world exists. It's all subjective. Because why? Because it doesn't, it doesn't exist, the sages say. There's some alternative facts for you. <laughs> this which you think is real, this which you think exists, doesn't. Doesn't have an independent reality. It's, it's concocted within your mind alone. 
It exists within alone. You are neither the body nor in the body. There is no such thing as body. You have grievously misunderstood yourself. To understand rightly, investigate. That's my favorite spiritual teaching right there. Investigate. You are not in the body, and the body, the body is in you. Have we heard that before in a different way? When somebody said to Vivekananda, you know, were you in Alameda today? I know I'm not in Alameda. Alameda is in me. So he was practicing what we're talking about. He understood all that he saw, all that he experienced, all that is around him. He understood. I'm not in there. I'm not in it. It is me. It's my reflection. Alameda, the entire city of Alameda is in me. The the entire notion of DC is within me. Everything is within me, exists in my mind only. You are not in the body. The body is in you. The mind is in you. They happen to you. They are because you find them interesting. (laughs) That's the whole why of it. Isn't that a weird thing? That's a very odd notion. All of this is just because you're interested in it. What's a, what's a meaner way of saying that? You're attached, homie. <laughs> you're deeply attached to what you're experiencing. And the reason that you can't see these truths, the reason that they're not apparent to you, is because you like it this way. Because it's comfortable. You've become, you've, you've always been this way. You were taught to be this way from your, from your babyhood days all the way forward. Again and again and again, you were taught what a sweet young boy you were, what a smart young girl you were, what a great scientist you are, what an awesome accomplishment you've done graduating from school, how great you've got your job. Oh, you're so successful, you've become rich. I'm so proud you can take care of yourself. Again and again and again, this idea of you as a particular perspective that's within the dream and being acted on by the dream and reacting within the dream again and again and again gets reinforced. That hypnotization, that little pendulum. And you're, you're comfortable. Not because it's always great here, but even when it's great, at least it's fam- or not great, it's still familiar, right? So you go and you eat it anyway. I remember going to uh, Prague when I was in, after college, actually. When I moved there for a little while. And uh, I was sitting in this fantastic cafe. It was, it, was, it was such an anomaly. I'd never been in a place like it because it was an old kind of dilapidated building that somebody had just sort of started a business in. But it was grand inside. You know, it used to be this beautiful uh, banquet hall. I mean, like all the old fixtures were there, but everything was old and like just really worn out. And I was sitting there having this cup of coffee and across the street was a McDonald's. (laughs) And I saw all these tourists going in and out of McDonald's. And I was sitting there scratching my head thinking, well, look, this place, which is totally cool, 
totally unique, an experience you're not going to get in the grand old U.S. of A. anywhere, just the history that brought this place about, and yet everybody's going into Mickey D's across the street. It's like, how, why did you travel all the way to Prague to go to McDonald's? It's the same reason that we refuse to see our enlightenment. It's the same reason that we refuse to recognize what we are. It's familiar. That Big Mac may not be as good as the, as the, the, the dumplings I was having, you know, <laughs> but it's familiar. You're going to look at that menu and know what everything is. You're not going to just have to go like this with the menu and pick something. <laughs> so it's like that. So, and through this exercise that we're talking about, that we're describing here, which we'll try here momentarily, I'm probably running terribly out of time, that, uh, that, we'll, that, that you can see. Because when you do this practice, when you sit there and just try and only be the observer, only be the witness, don't understand that everything that moves, everything that pops in and out of existence in front of you is not you, because you're steady, you're unchanging, you've always been there watching, you've never even blinked, you've never missed a single thought, you know. You've been there solid, quiet, steady the entire time. Identify with that. That is your nature. That is that calm tranquility. That's where it comes from. It's from knowing that you've been standing there watching this reflection of your perfect love, of your perfect nature, dancing and playing in front of you for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's where that tranquility and that steadiness comes from. So sit in that place. Try and find that place. I'm going to assign that to those who are willing to accept it as your homework later. I'm running out of time here, and I want to get to a couple of other things. But this all exists because you're interested. And so when you sit there this afternoon or whenever you do this practice, and those thoughts that keep coming up, why is it that you keep grabbing them and applying me and mine to them? It reveals a whole bunch of stuff about why you can't see God. It reveals a whole bunch of truth about why you can't let go and why you're not enlightened, why you're not perfectly steady, why you're not perfectly tranquil and free and pure. So watch those things and keep letting go and keep letting go and keep letting go and become a Srinishagadatta. So that's one way of approaching this beast. Now I'm going to read the Psalm of David. David did the same thing. But he did it as a devotee, not as a jnani. He did it in, in the, through the universe, not separate from the universe. He wrote this beautiful song. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie.